Good morning. So we're going to continue uh, our series on the providence of God. And just a reminder what prompted me to do this is just observing the the actions of God over the last few years and the way that he would answer prayer and bring trouble and, and all that sort of a thing. And my goal in this series is that you will praise the Lord for what he, who he is and what he does. And um, where last week we took a couple passages and really looked at them closely, this week, because we're going to be talking about um, what it looks like in the world, uh, we'll be moving to a lot of passages and not really sticking with one very closely. It's more of a survey, but... Um, I have, a, I have a couple friends who associate towns and cities uh, with food. You know, do you have a friend like that? You know, you mentioned, uh, yeah, we're going to go this way, this place, and they say, you know, over there there's this restaurant, and I went there this one time, and the Italian was just so delicious, and you talk about going to another place, and they said, there's this little diner in town, and it makes the best coconut pie. And every place they go, you, you, they talk to them about their vacation. How was vacation? Well, we went to this place and the, the food was just amazing at this restaurant I found in town. And um, they, love, they love to tell you about the food. And I imagine you're the same way. You find a restaurant you really, really enjoy and you want people to experience that joy. And so you tell them about it, right? And, and part, of the, um, part of the experience is to tell others about a good restaurant and then find out how much they enjoy it when they actually go there um you know we we have we enjoy local restaurants or food trucks around here don't we it's about time flavor on main burn ends the mexican food truck anything but pinto tie oh uh, we we uh we really enjoy but uh but you love to hear that report when somebody says you know what i enjoyed that restaurant it just makes you happy well, C.S. Lewis noted in his book, Reflections on the Psalms, th the same thing. He said, we delight uh, to praise what we enjoy because the praise is not merely expressing, but completes the enjoyment. It's, it's like the consummation of the enjoyment of a thing to be able to praise it. And so here's why I believe that God wants us to learn about his providence, because knowing and praising his providence gives us pleasure. Would you agree? You remember the story of Nebuchadnezzar? And he became like a beast for seven years. His nails grew long. He grew hair, fur, whatever he grew. And um, his experience of becoming like a beast and to becoming back like a man ends with his praising God. He said this. He said, at the end of days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed most high and praised and honored him who lives forever. And then verse 37, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol the honor in, of the king of heaven for what? All his works. There's providence right there. All his works are right, and all his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. 
Um, we were made to glorify God by rejoicing in His providential work. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your what? Work. There's providence to God. There's providence again. By your work and the works of your hands, I sing for joy. Thanksgiving is this next week. And so one of the praises that we can offer him is the praise from a heart that's thrilled by the works of God in this world. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. Our Heavenly Father, I pray that as we um, look at the providence of God in uh, nature and in kingdoms and um, even uh, your rule over Satan, I pray that you will draw our hearts to praise your name in Christ's name. Amen. In the bulletin and I think even on the website, uh, the, the, the subtitle is wrong. I changed everything after I told people what I was going to be speaking of. So it's not the office fault. It's my fault if you notice that things are different. As I said last week, as I was meditating on the works of God, I told you I could, I could take a whole sermon and just praise for the Lord the, all the different ways that he's provided, even in the last few months, the things that he's done. And, and that is good and right. The psalmist said, all your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. Are you praising the Lord? Are you blessing the Lord for all of his works? I bring this up because when people see the scope of God's providential work from the grandest of things to the smallest detail, one of two reactions happen or occur. One is they praise the Lord for all of his work. Or when they see the magnitude of his sovereign rule and the way that his providence works, they come to the conclusion, well, um, we're just like robots, you know, because God's going to do what God's going to do. But what the Bible teaches is that the providence of God, it teaches it so that we draw our hearts to praise. And so as we look at things over the next at least another week, maybe two weeks of, of sermons, your heart, I pray that your heart will be drawn to praise him and not some sort of a, a negative conclusion that some people can come to. When we begin to look at the providential works of God, it's helpful to have two views. One is the forest, and one is the trees. We tend to see one or the other. Uh, another way of looking at it, um, more artistically, what better writers and better thinkers I do would say, I'm, I'm, I would say forest from trees, that's who I am, some guys would say um, it's a tapestry. The work of God is a giant tapestry. And it's got, and in that tapestry, there are millions and billions of beautiful threads of individual work that God does in your life and in my life. And all together, when, we, when time is done and we get to heaven, we will not only see the full tapestry of what God has done, we will see the individual threads whether those providences are hard or easy, whether they're sorrowful or joyful, we will forever and ever and ever praise the Lord for the millions and billions of individual threads that he weaved to make this beautiful world. So let's look at God's providence in the natural world. Now the Bible talks about God's creation in grand terms. Now, because I like astronomy, we're going to talk about stars. Is that okay? Okay. 
okay? Um, God creates the stars. Psalm 145.10, all your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you, okay? Um, and that is a wrong reference that I stuck in there, so, um, well, I won't go into the behind-the-scenes stuff on that. Um, he, puts, he puts each one in place. The Bible says, when I look at your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, they are set in place, and he sustains them. That's why last night, if you were crazy enough to do it, you could stay out all night long and watch the Leonid meteor shower because he set everything in place and they're timed. And we don't have to worry about it because he set them in their place and they're not going to move. He determines the number of the stars and he gives to all of them their names uh, so that they can do his bidding. Lift up your eyes on high and see um, who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. In other words, not one's out of place. Last night, as I said, it was a leaning meteor shower. I met with the astronomy club last night um, at, at a place where there was an observatory, and there were new people there. And so a couple big, great big telescopes there, and we took them to Andromeda Galaxy and Jupiter and Saturn and the Double Cluster and, and uh, Messier 14, all these different wonders in the night sky, and they're so familiar, you don't have to use anything to find them if you know where they are in the sky. You just point the telescope and there it is. And do you know why? The answer is because once God created them, he kept them in their place. And we don't have to worry tomorrow night or tonight going back out, I wonder if Andromeda Galaxy is still there or did it move over? God sustains everything and puts it in its place. But not only does he attend to the stars, he also attends to the earth. He who removes the mountains, they know it not. And when he overturns them in his anger, who shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble. That's Job 9, 5 and 6. Psalm 104, 32 who looks to the earth and it trembles? Who touches the mountains and they smoke? Literally, the Bible teaches that God rearranges the mountains as he sees fit. It's, it's almost like um, uh, a hostess redecorating the room. You know how it is if you're married to uh, somebody who likes to redecorate? What do they do? You come in the room, it's this way one day, a couple weeks later, it's been changed. Now, God's not... I'm not saying God's fickle, but when he decides I'm going to move a mountain, he moves a mountain because that's the God that we serve. Um, all the natural processes in the earth, such as earthquakes, are in God's control. And I want you to think about something. If he can cause an earthquake, can he not stop an earthquake? We don't know how many earthquakes he's actually stopped. We only know the ones that he allowed. I was, um, I was in Israel during the earthquake in Turkey earlier this year, and during about a one-minute earthquake, the ground felt like liquid. And of course, you know, there was, I think there was over 50,000 people that lost their lives. In God's providence, um, he, that, that happened because of God's providential care of the planet. We don't know why he decided it that way, but he did. In speaking of the natural world, the psalmist said, all things are your servants. All things are your servants. Concerning the destruction of Turkey, 
um, uh, the cities in Turkey, Amos says, does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? Rhetorical question, what's the answer? No, no. God's not the cause of evil. He's not the cause of evil. But he does permit evil. God controls the water cycle. We're in a drought right now, aren't we? Um, I didn't even realize, by the way, I didn't even realize the fires were still burning. I, I went over into the Shenandoah Valley uh, Friday, and there's smoke everywhere. And I, was, I thought that they were out from the rain, but um, they were not. But anyway, we're in a drought. I went to northern Wisconsin two weeks ago. The day before I got there, they had three inches of rain. We could use three inches of rain, couldn't we? You know what that reminds me of? Amos 4 and verse 7. I also withheld the rain from you when you were yet three months to harvest. I would send rain on one city and send no rain on another city. One field would have rain, and on the field in which it did not rain would wither. Field to field, city to city, God controls the weather. Now, we in the West, we can look and say, well, there's natural processes by which that happens, but there's still an omnipotent power who's guiding those natural processes. Jesus said, for he makes the sun to rise on the evil and good. He sends the rain on the just and the unjust. Global warming or not, God causes droughts. And I've called for a drought on the land and the hills and on the grain, on the new wine and the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast and all their labors. God is the ultimate cause of all of this. God in his providential care of the universe, of the earth, he does things as he sees fit and his ways are right. And I say all that to encourage you with the words of Jesus about the natural world. This is where I'm going. The power of God. I want you to see the power of God. This is what Jesus says to you and to me. He said it initially to his disciples, but it applies to us. Ready? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the, the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, what does he say? How much more would I, would I clothe you, O oh, you of little faith? In other words, if I'm going to take care of the grass, if I'm going to care for the flowers, for example, the Mexican poppies that in the super bloom in Arizona last spring, beautiful, beautiful um, uh, spring super bloom uh, there and in California. If God is in control of the individual poppies and cause them to just beautify the landscape with their, um, with their beauty and their color, it should encourage us to trust him. If God's providence works in detailed ways over plants and lilies and poppies, then you know what it does for us? It frees us from worldly cares and concerns because we are of more value. What is God's ultimate goal for us that we learned last week? That he's going to move us along until one day in eternity we sing his pra the praise of the glory of his grace forever and ever and ever. And so earthly concerns are small in comparison. We haven't even scratched the surface in the natural world. We could dive all the way down to the molecular and atomic worlds if you want. And he is before all things. And in, in him, 
All things hold together. Talking about Jesus Christ in Colossians 1.17. Hebrews 1.3. He is a radiance of the glory of God. The exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. Everything He upholds by the word of His power. Aren't you thankful for that? Aren't you thankful you don't wake up in the morning saying, well, I really hope gravity works today. Not like our internet connection here at church. Right? God controls the vastness of the universe. And yet every electron, every molecule, every cell in your body, every blade of grass is governed by God and exists for His glory. Wonderful, isn't it? Well, let's consider something else. How about nations and kings? Nations and kings. When you read the Old Testament, Israel is the dominant focus. But God tells us that His providence extends to the nations as well. Paul told the Athenians, uh, He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Now this occurred when God scattered the people over the face of the earth in Genesis 11:7. But God determines the boundaries. And guess what that means? He moves boundaries whenever He sees fit. And He, he upholds kings and presidents when He sees fit. Just as the Lord rules over nations, He also sets up and removes kings. This is what Proverbs says. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever He will. And when that word stream of water, think canal. It's, it's the word for when they would make a canal in the middle of the desert to bring water somewhere. That's the king's heart in the hand of the Lord. 150 years before he was king, the Lord promised the Persian king Cyrus that he would hold him by the right hand. There's an anthropomorphism. Hold him by the right hand and give him the treasures of the world. Look at what it says, Isaiah 45. Verse number 1 says, Thus says the Lord to his anointed to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, there it is, to subdue nations before him, to loose the belts of kings, and to open the doors before him that gates may not be closed. In other words, look, Cyrus, I'm going to take you by the hand. I'm going to open every door for you. And I'm going to smooth away um, every road for you. And you're going to have a smooth riding. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes in the secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord God of Israel, who call you by your name. Now, let me stop there um, and say that's to Israel. Okay? Next verse, you'll see why. For the sake of my servant Jacob <coughs> and Israel my chosen, unless you think that Cyrus knew God, he never did, he said, I call you by your name, I name you, though you do not know me. You see, he did these things so that Israel would know that he's God, and he called Cyrus to do it, even though Cyrus never knew the Lord. Now, why did God take special care of Cyrus? 
Why in his providence did he um, take Cyrus and move him along the way that he did? The answer is to restore the exiles of Israel, Isaiah 45, 13. I have stirred him up in righteousness, talking about Cyrus, and I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free, not for price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. And if you look at the first decree of Cyrus, what did he do? He decreed that the exiles go back to Jerusalem, and he gave the money to rebuild the city and the temple. And he never knew God by name. Amazing, isn't it? That's the God that we serve. Cyrus, I am sure, thought that he conquered by his own power and ingenuity, wouldn't he? Because that's what human beings do. But all along, God was guiding him. And even today, God raises up kings and presidents. He brings up nations and he takes down nations. But it's not just nations and kings and presidents. It's, it's elected officials all the way down to a local level. Whether they do it by graft and corruption or however else they do it. God's the one that raises people up and brings people down. Because that's his providential care of the world. Now I want to close out the discussion of rulers and I want to make an observation and application uh, that is important for you and me today. And if you pay attention to this, I think it's going to be a real blessing to you. A consistent theme in the Bible is that God uses the humble to rule. For example, where was King Saul when on his coronation day remember he was hiding in the luggage they had to go looking for him but what happened to king saul he became proud what did god do god took the kingdom from him king david was next he was a humble shepherd boy who was placed on the throne by god doesn't get any more humble than that. A shepherd back in that day, they were the lowest in the family. You weren't just the lowest in society, you were lowest in your own family as well. And he was the youngest, the lowest. And God took him and made him king, and God reminded him of that in 2 Samuel 7, verses 8-9. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people, Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones on earth. And so that's David. Solomon expressed a similar unworthiness of becoming the king of Israel. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David my father. Although I am but a little child, I do not know how to go out or to come in. And so God uses the humble to rule. Now, of course, when we think about kings, we think about the king of kings and lord of lords whose birth we're getting ready to celebrate after Thanksgiving, right? Think about that. He was born to poor parents. He's born in a backwater region of the Roman Empire. He wasn't born in Rome. 
He wasn't born in Jerusalem. He's born in Galilee. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Well, he wasn't born. He was raised in Galilee. I'm sorry. Just so I don't get the email. <laughs> yeah, there you go. The internet's down. So, um, He was born in a feeding trough. Wrapped in swaddling clothes. The son of a carpenter. He lived his life. He never owned property. The foxes have holes. The birds of the air has nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He suffered a shameful death. But what does the Bible say about him now? Where is he now? He's in heaven. He's highly exalted. The pattern is shame and suffering than glory. And it's no different than you for you and me. Here's the encouragement I want to offer you. Put your trust in God. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 1, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Jesus Christ, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. So that as is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And so, who does God call to be his people predominantly? The lowly. I'm not going to ask but I seriously doubt that there are any Harvard grads here. I don't see any Rockefellers or anybody close to Rockefellers in here. If you are, I'm sorry, I don't know it, and I apologize for insulting you, but that's who God chooses. Listen to James. Listen, my beloved brothers. God has not chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him. Did you catch that? Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world? Now, poor in the world doesn't mean poor, poor. It means poor in every respect. No nobility, no lineage, no power, no nothing. And he chose those people to be what? Heirs. Heirs in the kingdom. God says, Jesus said, you and I will reign one day. And so it leads one man to say this about the providence of God. The vastness and depth and completeness of God's providence in history over kings and nations is designed by God to give confidence to his children. Here it is, that when he calls us to humble ourselves, we take the low place of service knowing that God said, whoever is humble himself will be exalted. And so we can humble ourselves. We can, we can be insulted. We can be persecuted. We can be discounted. We can take the place of service because we trust God that one day 
we will reign with Jesus Christ. So we can trust him. We don't have to take vengeance. What is a natural human response to an insult? To take vengeance, right? It's to defend ourselves. And we're called to be humble. And he will exalt us. So we can take it from Old Testament history. Joseph, Ruth, David, Moses, and many others are example of Lord Jesus. That if we humble ourselves and we put our trust in the Lord, he will exalt us. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. That, his providence, gives us that guarantee. That's a promise that we can take to the bank, and it's something that we can praise him and glorify him in. Isn't that wonderful? Let me go one last area. Satan and demons. So I went to lunch the other day with a guy, and we were talking about demonic activity. And if we believe the Bible, we know that Satan is a liar, a deceiver, an opposer, shrewd, and he works to deceive differently in different ways. And this is where I'm going with this. We were talking about the work of Satan. And Satan is a master at using cultures to deceive. So, for example, we live in the West. In Western culture, we've been influenced by the Enlightenment. We've been influenced by the scientific revolution, the industrial revolution, and, and all of that sort of thing. And so that makes us way more <coughs> sophisticated than everybody else. And so we all know that Satan doesn't exist. Right? That Satan is just a fairy tale. You know, he's that guy you see in the drawings getting a red suit with a pitchfork. And that's what people in our society believe. All this spiritual stuff, it's just a fairy tale. Guess what? Satan's perfectly happy for you to believe that. That's deceitful. But there are other cultures that have not been as affected by the Enlightenment thinking or all of these kind of higher academic things, we would call them maybe primitive cultures. I don't know what the right word is. And they live in daily awareness of demonic activity and the power of evil in the spiritual realm. And Satan uh, deceives them and holds them in fear by overt activity. I'm talking about, um, and I don't want to go into detail, making objects levitate changing people's voices, uh, doing all sorts of things such as that. And he keeps those people in fear. And those people, they know the spiritual world's real. They know um, demons are real because they see their activity outwardly, overtly. So in modern culture, Satan plays on skepticism and is happy with ignorance. Primitive culture, Satan plays on their fear and controls them. Now, what does uh, demonic activity look like in a modern culture? Well, I'm glad you asked. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2, and I will show you. Paul already tells us what it's going to look like in America because it looked the same in the Roman Empire. And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world 
following who? The prince of the power of the air, that's Satan. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Now, here's the question before we go on. How are they following Satan? What does it look like? Keep reading. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. Here it is. Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So what does it look like in America when people follow Satan? They follow the desires of the body and the mind. Now, I want to be sensitive here because many of you have close family, very close family, who fall into this category, but it's very easy to see. That's our modern culture. Complete autonomy. My body, my choice. The whole LBGT, LB, LG, you know what I'm saying, Um, I'm sorry, I'm not making fun of it. Uh, um, That ideology is based upon this verse, isn't it? Whatever I desire, that's what I'm going to fulfill. Modern culture believes that true freedom is the ability to do with my body what I want to do and with whom I want to do it. They call this sexual freedom. But in reality, what they crave only brings further bondage. Titus 3.3 For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and desires. And so Satan is so deceitful that he can get people into enslavement Think and make them think that this is true freedom. That's how deceitful he is. Again, if you have a family member like this or somebody close to you like this, I'm not, I'm not, you understand what I'm trying to say, right? Okay. I'm trying to be sensitive to this, but this is what the Bible says. But Satan is far more powerful than enslavement. According to Job, Satan has power over death and disease natural disasters but what job is sure to do is to show us that even though satan has all this power it is god who gives satan permission he can only do what god permits him remember what he told satan he said you can touch his body but you can't kill him well first he said you can't touch job then he said you can touch his body but you can't kill him That's the permission part. He can only do what he's permitted. Jesus called Satan a murderer. But even in this, it is God who is sovereign over these matters. Deuteronomy 32, 39. See now that I, even I am he. There is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. There is none that can deliver out of my hand. None that can deliver out of my hand. God is in control, even though he gives Satan vast permission and vast power to do things. All through Scripture, the Bible makes it plain that Satan can, and many times does, cause disease. 
Uh, we spent four months in the Phoenix metro area. Uh, large homeless population. Last spring when we were there, I would drive through Mesa to take uh, my wife to the clinic. Almost every single day, I saw this elderly homeless woman who was bent over almost 90 degrees. She used a shopping cart. This is not an exaggeration. She walked everywhere like this, down the sidewalk. You saw her every single day, this, this uh, homeless woman. And every time I saw her, I thought about Luke chapter 13, wondering what's going on with her. In that chapter, Jesus meets a woman who was bent over and unable to stand for 18 years. He heals her on the Sabbath and defending himself, he said this. Um, oh, there we go. I had it. And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loose from this bond on the Sabbath day? She was bent over this elderly, this woman here for 18 years because Satan did it. And God allowed it. And every time I saw that woman, I wondered what was going on with her and prayed for her. Almost every time I saw her, I prayed for her that, that she would be healed, whether it's physical ailment or it's the bondage of Satan. And so Satan has tremendous power. In our journey the last four years, uh, particularly in the last nine months of her life, Heather wondered if there was not some sort of a satanic origin to her disease. Um, and she did this by putting varied circumstances together, her opinion was that um, Satan was trying to discourage me in, in several ways. Uh, most grievous is her disease and death. She looked at me several times and said, what greater way could Satan affect the whole church by discouraging you through my death? Now, I'm not saying that happened. I'm not saying, please don't get, say this, but she was well-versed enough in Scripture to know that's a very real possibility. God allows Satan to do these things. But then you ask, you have to ask, why? We know that God allowed death and disease and destruction to visit Job in a terrible way. He lost all his children. He lost all his property. He lost his means of earning money. And what did he do when all this happened? He said this, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now, was he wrong? Was he wrong? There's a lot of people that might say, yeah, he's wrong. My God wouldn't allow that. But James actually gives us the answer to all that. James chapter 5, verse number 11 Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. And here's this example. You heard of the steadfastness in Job. In other words, Job never turned his back on God. He never denied God. He kept seeking God. And you have seen the purpose of the Lord. And here it is. How the Lord is compassionate and merciful. In other words, the way I interpret this verse, and this is Jared, I don't know how the scholars interpret this verse. The only way that Job would have been able to see, or I should say the greatest way that Job could see the compassion and mercy of God 
And the greatest way that we can see the compassion and mercy of God in Job's life is for God to allow Satan to do all these terrible things to Job. That's a dimension of God that we cannot see unless these things happen. In this, God has shown his compassion and mercy to his own. But the takeaway that I want you to see is that God, not Satan, is the final ruler of the universe. I'm going to close with one last area of Satan's power. Satan has the power to blind the minds of people. Consider what Paul said, 2 Corinthians 4.4, in their case, the God of this world, that's talking about um, Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers. To do what? To keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. In other words, Satan, God allows Satan to blind people's minds so they can't understand the gospel, they can't see Jesus as he is in the gospel, but Satan blinds minds. Now, why would Satan do that? Because Satan hates God and he hates his creation and he wants to take as many people to hell with him as he can. But again, Satan's not sovereign. And so two verses later, in 2 Corinthians 4 and verse number 6, Paul states, For God who has said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Let me translate for you. Ready? Even though Satan blinds minds so they can't understand the gospel, and we know from other scripture that's the state of every single human being, Paul said, now, was there anyone around when God said, let there be light? That was a sovereign act, wasn't it? That's, follow Paul's logic. This is Paul's logic. A sovereign act that says light is created. So therefore, it is a sovereign act when God allows humanity to see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ and whereby they get saved. That's the logic of these verses. Satan blinds, people don't get saved. God gives light to minds and people get saved. Satan is not sovereign. In a clear statement of God's sovereignty in who sees the gospel and who does not, he says, let there be light. And he overcomes Satan's blindness in people's hearts with anyone he chooses. Now Satan is evil, he's deceitful, he's hateful, he's powerful beyond our imagination, but he is limited by the providence of God and what he can do. Isn't that wonderful? Now we are called to see God's providential care in every realm of the natural world from the grand scale of the universe and design to the micro scale down to poppies and lilies and atoms and molecules. And God wants us to see his providence in moving nations and kings. Think about this. The, the Roman emperor called for a census and that census moved Jesus' family 
from Nazareth to Bethlehem to fulfill a prophecy. Right? That's the God that we serve. And God is sovereign over Satan, even though Satan has terrible, awful power, we never need to fear Satan because we are in Jesus Christ. And in these things, we can praise the glory of the providence of God and his grace in our lives. Amen. Lord, I thank you for these um, thoughts. Basically, we just walk through scripture and let Scripture speak today. And I pray that um, you will do in people's hearts what you've done in mine. And I don't understand... Lord, I don't understand why you've done the things you do. But I'm to trust you and to praise you in all of it. And just like John said earlier today, we have so many things to be thankful for. And so, Lord, I pray that you will draw our eyes to the great God who loves us, doesn't shield us from the hard things, but shows us so many things about himself in the midst of them. In Christ's name, amen.